Welcome to Keeping Score. I'm Rick Haro. Each week we bring you insights from the playmakers, dealmakers, and rule makers in the world of sports. I'll give you my take on some of the items of the week using my 30 years of experience doing deals for teams, leagues, and players in the $750 billion business of sports. Plus, we'll talk with a central figure in the sports world. The views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of Reuters. Let's get started. Sports business news honoring significant athletes and icons in the business and the industry. Uh, Rick Harrell and my former friend, Dan Calaruso, who was invited to sit with me very close to the field to watch the uh, number two Derek Jeter retirement ceremony, but he immediately and systematically has refused all my invitations. Former friend, how are you? I would rather be your former friend than my wife's former husband <laughs> and asking me to a ball game on Mother's Day, uh, which happened to coincide with her birthday, seemed like the prudent move. Seems like something Jeter would do. WWJD. What would Jeter do? And I, I think Jeter would, would stay home. Well, guess what? He and his wife were there and 47,000 adoring fans. And your other issue, by the way, is you're a Mets fan. So anything the Yankees do successfully, you disdain. Roughly. Yeah. Okay. Yes. All right. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's get into the more important stuff because people really don't want to hear this. You're not a golfer either, but you are a student of corporate takeovers and golf. And interestingly, right after Rory McIlroy signed a $100 million reported contract tailor-made, sold by Adidas to a private equity firm, KPS Capital Managers, for $425 million, probably undervalued. Uh, they looked at uh, Tiger Woods as signed, Dustin Johnson, number one in the world. But it may be a move that's beyond just wrapping up some celebrities. What what say you? Well, I, you know, I, this struck me. Uh, you know, you you talk about these, these golf deals. You have a great facility with them. I look at it more as a private equity deal, right? And I think about what private equity firms do. And typically they build up a little or a lot of debt. They try and reshape a brand or reshape an asset and then sell it off. And TaylorMade seems very well dressed up for another strategic buyer. Um, the question remains, I I'll ask you, why didn't a strategic go for it when Adidas had it on the block? Am I right in saying that they may be dressing it up? Or is this like a nice recurring revenue cash flow play for KPS? Well, you know, David Shapiro, their managing partner, says that this is a great deal because it's an iconic brand, plus their track record of, quote unquote, working constructively with talented management teams. You know what that means? Dressing it up. <laughs> $5.7 billion in investments in several companies KPS does. They may violently disagree with your theory and my theory, but listen, Titleist first quarter sales were $433 million, down about 1.4%, but this is exactly the kind of play that exudes dressing up and flipping, especially if the golf business is good, and that's the ultimate takeaway. They wouldn't be doing it if the golf business were going the other way. Right. If, if the rising tide of, a, of increased golf popularity lifts all boats, then you get that net income up, you, you know, you're able to do it off the back of a little bit of growth, and I'm sure you cut some costs, you get some efficiencies in there, and then you're able to wrap this thing up for another player. I, and again, you know the players in the field. Is there another strategic who would want this, or is there somebody looking to get involved in the golf market? Maybe an overseas buyer, maybe a Chinese buyer. It, it seems to make sense. Yeah, and, and, and again, if the rising or lowering tides would ground all boats, uh, they wouldn't have done this. And, and the golf industry seems to be coming back. That's the ultimate takeaway, which means there are a lot of buyers after it's dressed up. And if it's dressed up so well, the company keeps controlling interest, and it's all good for the company and its endorsers as well. And there are other equity interests all over the world, especially in American and ultimately European and worldwide broadcast groups. Nice. Sinclair, a broadcast group, agreed to buy Tribune Media for about $4 billion. Cubs 
Yankees, Dallas, Buffalo, Cincinnati, Houston, key markets, Sinclair, 173, mostly small city stations and tennis channel, but they're big in a lot of different ways, right? Yeah, they're they're big in a lot of different ways. Um, Tribune was an asset that people went after. Sinclair didn't have a clear path to get it. There, there was some other competition in there, and there's that issue of these local TV rights, right, and these local teams uh, that, that, you know, you tend to talk about a lot. And I, I think it, it gives a rival, especially with the right, you need the scale and you need to find value where there's value. So if you're not going to buy a full-on NFL rights package, uh, you might buy a great local sports franchise in terms of the rights, at least, and, and kind of extrapolate that live must-see TV, the last vestige of it you know, squeeze some revenue out of that. But Sinclair is a controversial company. They're very politically connected to the Republican Party right now. You wonder if that connection will lead to any influence or effective influence on regulators if you want to break down some of the anti-competitive stuff in the industry. It's, a, it's an interesting thing. I mean, what's your take on it? These local sports rights have enough to ring the cash register in a real way? They're trying to put a square peg in a quadrilateral triangle? Is mm. that is that what? I, I have no idea. But It but, wouldn't be a triangle, but it would be a shape. Whatever it is, but the bottom line is it's a different business model, as you pointed out. It's the small town, uh, 173 stations plus tennis channel, and the 42 TV stations that the Tribune company owns are the same kind of model. And as we said, local sports rights, incredibly valuable over time. That dynamic helping to keep legacy TV infrastructure intact and companies like Sinclair hungry for even more trophy properties. So they're doing something pretty unique that other companies scratching their heads and saying, I wish we had done it, which may mean jealousy, which may mean politically difficult roads to approval, both at the FCC and antitrust regulator approval. We'll just have to see. Yeah. And I think, look, if, if you're in markets, if you're in big markets that are big for pro sports teams, you know, you may not have the rights to the games, right? But you get the ancillary pregame show, postgame show, the coaches talk show on on Friday afternoons, whatever that might be, you're able to extract something from the sports presence in your town. And having coverage and making that a scalable infrastructure play um, and having the regulatory clout in D.C. does probably make it a little bit of a better business. Agree. Let's go to endorsability because, you know, when I see you, I, I see a lot of positives. You know, you're good looking, you're intelligent, uh, tall, uh, you appeal tall. to a very small yeah. set of people, but they yeah. seem to be affluent. The problem is you're much shorter than Carl Anthony Towns, and he plays for the Timberwolves. You play for nobody. And the bottom line is the guy has deals in place with Nike, Gatorade, 2K, Beats by Dre, Jack Links, and he may be the next guy. What do you think? Okay, well, first off, I did play for a, a pickup team called the Two Inch Verticals uh, back in Brooklyn <laughs> in the old days. But uh, more importantly, yeah, Towns is a great, great young player, great young talent. Seems like a solid citizen. His his ducks are lined up in terms of brands that he's associated with. Here's my question on him, though. We've seen this happen with a number of players. How long could he stay in Minnesota if Minnesota's not winning? And who will be in his ear to get out of town when his contract is up? Um, what brands, what agents, what lawyers, what marketers, what gurus? Mark Cuban will try and lure him away to Dallas. Um, not much of a bigger market, but if they're winning, they're winning. I think it's nice that he's growing up there. I think he's worked into a nice young player. But boy, second-tier team, second-tier market, I don't know how long it lasts. Here's the indirect answer to your question. If you have a LeBron or a Kevin Durant mentality, you could succeed in Cleveland or Oklahoma City more today than it used to be because the NBA is effectively global and it doesn't much matter. Yet, the second-tier market idea makes it harder to surround yourself with those good players and make you the Kevin Durant or LeBron James. And so I'm not sure if the Timberwolves have a shot of morphing into that. And so if I'm his agent, I try to get on a winner 
winner, it's it, it's it's less important, I think, to me or him whether the winner is in a big city or not. If you said that he would have been the missing piece in San San Antonio, or or might have been the missing piece in Washington, which you know might be possible, then they become the big endorsement opportunity, regardless of the size of the market. Yeah, absolutely right. I, I think you you could have looked back six or seven years and seen Golden State in a similar situation, even though that market is considered top tier. The team was kind of a second-class citizen in that town for a long time. Um, So, yeah, he could have the same earnings power in Washington, San Antonio, Miami. But, again, you know, in Minnesota, um, the window is open less, and it's open for a shorter period of time, I think, if you're trying to build a a contender. Uh, Two-inch verticals? The two-inch verticals. We were jump shooters. You better have shot well because you can't jump. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, listen— Well, those are all good topics, but we're ready for a couple of weeks of getting ready for the Indy 500, which is uh, America's iconic race around Memorial Day weekend. They've done uh, amazing things at Indianapolis Motor Speedway, including IMS, their organization, deepening its ties to the community. A.J. Foyt Racing entry driven by Zach Veach, representing the inaugural Indy Women in Tech LPGA tournament in September. Dan Towers, the president and CEO of Guggenheim Life, talks about why he did what he did to try to link his company with golf and racing. And then Zach Veach, who is a phenom, he is short, he is small, but he is a great driver, made his debut at the 2017 IndyCar Series in Alabama and his second race in Indianapolis. Both of them talk about the business and the athletic side of racing and the tie-in to golf next. Dan Tower, CEO of Guggenheim Life. How are you? Doing well, thanks. Awesome. This comes together at breakneck speed. First of all, you know special events. You wanted to make uh, sure that your hometown had a significant event. You had the financial means to do something, and you put this event together, the Women in Tech Championship, in record time. Basically, how'd you do it? Well, we had a lot of great support in the community. I think the track has been uh, tremendous, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. You know, that, for me, was really the, the linchpin uh, in getting the deal done, the footprint. Uh, that the track offers for a tournament to be more uh, than just a golf tournament. You know, for us, again, this was about a philanthropy effort. It's about our women in tech <coughs> initiative, and and the track really presented that perfect opportunity. So often, a golf tournament is in a resort area, in an outlying part of the community. Here, we've got it in the heart of the city, in an urban setting, with a tremendous footprint, with a tremendous history. It's a P-Dye course. And so for us, it couldn't be a more perfect combination. Well, the, the, the assets certainly were a perfect combination, but the partnership with Indianapolis Motor Speedway, the Indy 500, uh, Mark Miles, and his organization, pretty positive, pretty significant, isn't it? Oh, it's, it's been very significant. So Mark was great, Doug Bowles, uh, Allison Melanchthon, all the folks at the Speedway were just tremendous in putting this together, um, you know, and, and in combination with the LPGA, similar thing on that side, uh, Mike Wan, and uh, Ricky Lasky, all the folks at the LPGA were just tremendous as we looked to combine uh, and really just be a a team uh, in going after this project. And that's really, uh, that team effort is what helped it to come together so quickly. And the idea of using the track, because let's face it, they are probably one of the biggest uh, technology drivers in, in the entire state, if not in the country, and your inspired idea of workforce training, STEM, robotics, empowering women and girls for the first time. You're proud of that accomplishment. How did that all come about? Yeah, so in working with former Mayor Ballard, you know, as he said, the Motor Indianapolis Motor Speedway is the premier engineering facility in the state. And so to use that as a backdrop for a women in tech championship, 
uh, to promote STEM, to promote robotics, to promote career, career uh, retraining for, uh, again, to promote women in the workforce. It just all came together in a way that uh, was really unprecedented. So let's talk about the major event and its impact on the city. Obviously, Mayor Ballard, but the Super Bowl group that's more uh, the Indy Sports Corp, there's a real opportunity in a city like Indianapolis to make a statement on an annual basis. How important is this event, in your estimation, to the city of Indianapolis? I think it's very important. One, Indianapolis has a tradition for just opening up and being a tremendous uh, location for big sporting events, and I think there's no, it's no different here. <clears throat> the way that the, uh, the way that the city, the way the community leaders, the women have come together to form the local organizing committee. You don't realize how daunting a task it is to organize a golf tournament without uh, a club behind you, without volunteers, without all the folks that do that. And in this case, we had. Uh, just people coming out of the woodwork to support because of uh, because of what uh, a successful sporting event means to the city and what this event means uh, in supporting women in this location. And, and the other the final piece is you have a, a significant number of the world's greatest female athletes really excited about coming to a new venue, but also participating in an event that's going to have a major impact on uh, society, first locally and potentially nationally. How do you feel about all this? Yeah, so, so again, with the LPGA, you have an international tour. Uh, the, the women are just tremendous role models. Uh, it's the way they interact with the fans, the way they interact with the community, the way they can carry a cause. And, and so, again, they really connect with people in, in a deeper way than what you would typically expect for professional athletes coming in. And then when you take into account the fact that their outreach uh, is on an international scale, it just really starts to open up a number of opportunities uh, to again to bring that exposure and focus onto the women in tech initiative in the LPJ as people understand more about it on a global scale they realize it is a, a diverse organization with multi-talented individuals doing a whole lot of good things absolutely and I think one of the things we want to do for the LPJ tour in this event is to help the community help uh, the fans really get to know the players uh, you know on a deeper level because they can really appreciate just how talented how special uh, and how great of a role model you know each of these players are and so I think one of the things we want to do is to especially for the international players is, is to introduce them in, into the community so that it feels uh, again like an international tour from that standpoint and that familiarity that recognition will be there. Finally maybe most importantly I understand and I know that your day job is, is international in scope intergalactic in scope but you are practicing pretty significantly. You don't understand that it's bad form if you win the Pro-Am in the event that you sponsor. Do you understand that? <laughs> I think it would be good form in that sense, but uh, we'll, uh, I'm not counting on that happening uh, given my time in the office, but well, we'll see what happens. So, ladies and gentlemen, we're saving that comment. We're going to play that back for you in October and see if it's really true. Dan, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Very, very interesting dynamic over the next few weeks. It's a merger of, of golf and racing and more racing and more racing, but primarily racing and economic development. We're here at the unveiling of the Indy Women in Tech Championship car uh, driven by Zach Veach. Zach, how are you? Doing great, thanks for having me. Absolutely, and we're here to talk about so much more. First of all, take my hat off to you. You are uh, I don't know what it is found of youth-wise, but you're 22 going on 12. How did you do it? That, that is the problem. I don't know. I guess really good or bad genes, if we want to talk about it that way. I, you know, one thing I do when I'm out of race cars, I help out with the IndyCar two-seater where we give rides. And Mario Andretti is like the face of that program. And 
will always be out, you know, giving rides, and Mario always introduces me as just turning 13, so uh, that's something I've had to live with for a while, but hey, I'll appreciate it in like 20 years. <laughs> yes, you will. And you're also not going to tell Mr. Andretti that he can't, right? <laughs> he can do whatever he wants to when he introduces you. Well, I think, so. you know, that's part of paying your dues, right? Maybe in another 40 years I'll be able to do the same. Well, but a meteoric rise through the world of racing, and it, first of all, it doesn't come cheap and it doesn't come to the faint of heart. So kind of give us a snapshot of your early days, from your karting days to your you know, F200, 2000 series and beyond. How'd you get here? Oh, you know, it's, it's something that didn't come as easy as I thought it would be when I was, yeah. you know, six years old with this dream. But, you know, it kind of goes back to my start as my father was a national champion of truck and tractor pulling. And I credit a lot of my success as just the way that I was raised and, and the parents that I had because, you know, once he knew I was serious about this, you know, for nine years, I begged that I wanted to race. And he won the world finals and thought, well, you know, he's serious about this. So I'm going to quit my dream, which was what he thought about since he was a little boy. So I'd have an opportunity to chase mine. So my dad um, told me one thing that stuck with me my, my entire career, and it was, I'll work as hard as you do, and I'll take you to the track anytime you want to go. And any time turned into every day, because I felt I got a late start and I wanted to you know, push. And then I just learned that it's something that you get what you put in it. And I've just had that work ethic that my dad's taught me since opening his own company and, and starting my career. Traditional school, traditional high school, traditional undergrad? Or? Traditional school up to eighth grade, and then I was missing something like 60 days a year, yeah. and my public school kind of frowned upon that. So I had to make the decision to go online and uh, lose my friends and, and my community, but I, I gave that up so I could have this dream. Now you make different friends. Yeah, well, Epiphany sure. moment. So sometime <laughs> before eighth grade, eighth grade, you said, I'm going to do this, I'm going to be all in, I'm going to do it well, I'm going to win. You take that dream, your dad also helped you in the business, obviously, but, but how, does, how do you turn that dream into a, into a business reality? It's got to be something that you think about every day of your life. You know, that's, that's the thing with racing that every morning when I get out of bed, I want to better myself, improve myself in this, you know, high competitive world of motorsports. And one side of that is the business side. And, you know, being a young kid, 22 years old, it, it's tough to step into the boardroom with people that have been doing business for 60 years and, and try to prove that you're effective in a way. And, and my way to help people is through the form of motorsports. So I've been very lucky up to this point using a lot of outlets to kind of differ myself from the typical racing driver. I published my own book when I was 16. I, I helped with anti-texting while driving, anti-bullying, because I wanted to use racing as my stage to, to meet with people. And with the Indy Women in Tech Championship, it gives me another opportunity to, to help people. And that's something I'm really appreciative of. Don't minimize the book that you wrote, this 99 Things Teens Knew uh, Before Turning 16 and this anti-texting app, URTXT. I still text, you know, it hit me in the head, and there are a lot of people who will do it, and it takes somebody with vision at an early age to say, don't do it. What motivated you to do that? Well, unfortunately, my uh, envision of that came because uh, we had a traumatic experience in my hometown. I, I come from a small farm town of about 200 people, so when something affects one of us, it really affects us all. And I lost a close friend due to texting while driving, and I thought, you know, I'm in this environment where a lot of kids look up to me. I'm driving, you know, these race cars, so I should be, you know, the focus point on good driving. So I thought that would be a perfect way for me to share my experience with kids about how dangerous texting while driving is, because if a driver going 240 miles an hour around the Indianapolis Motor Speedway doesn't text and drive, uh, somebody who just got their license probably shouldn't either. 
I think they both shouldn't. It's probably a good <laughs> idea, ladies and gentlemen. But the interesting thing about that dynamic is that a lot of athletes who are role models, you hear it all over the place, will arrive and then they figure out how to give back either because they're told to or because they want to. You're doing this at an early age before you reach the pinnacle of your career. So kudos and how how important it is to is it to continue that focus and make sure the charitable work continues? It's only getting easier now that I've you know arrived per se to the, the highest level of motorsports in America. Because you know as a young guy, everybody dreams of being to the Verizon IndyCar Series, but it's so difficult to get there. You know, unfortunately, the sad thing is when not all of us make it. So early on in my career, I didn't know how much time that I would have. I knew this is something I wanted to dedicate my life to, but you know, there's a lot of factors that go in that drivers can't control that keep them out of the seat and. That's why I was encouraged to get my early start to do as much as I could while I could and while I was irrelevant, or relevant, I should yeah. say. Um, and it's just only gotten bigger and bigger from here. Well, and the story of how this all happened is an interesting one. Tell it from your perspective. So the Ford organization got a hold of Dan Towers and Guggenheim, and the deal was put together in fairly short order, wasn't it? <laughs> I think Light, it was, lightning speed. It was one of the shortest deals done in Indy history, probably. Uh, you know, for me, that was kind of the thing is, it was, uh, you know, a goal line for me. I knew I only had a few more days to make something happen, and you know, I was so eager. It's, you know, everybody around me knew how stressful of a time that was. I had about a week and a half, and I uh, called a local friend of mine who's a pastor here in Indiana, and he passed along Dan's contact to me and thought this might be someone you'd like to speak with, and I uh, actually sent Dan an email. He scheduled a call, and uh, we kind of just hit it off, and things kind of snowballed to this point, but. I knew I had a great organization behind me with Voight Racing and uh, just with Dan's uh, you know, establishment with Guggenheim and with Indy Women in Tech, it was just perfect timing for all of us. So you know, I think uh, I got the nudge from some other place to, to make this happen. Well, whether you got the nudge from some other place or not, it is, it is kismet, it's synergistic, it's whatever you want to call it, but you'll find Dan's incredible philanthropy and obviously yours, you start early at giving back before you've arrived. So, great things planned, right? You just got to do well on the track, too. Well, you know, that's the easy part, yeah. I think. Uh, you know, it's definitely going to be extremely competitive, but, you know, I'm a driver. My, my place at home's in the cockpit of a race car, and it's uh, four days and about 21 hours until we're on track here at Indy. Uh, so, you know, for me, that's just, that's when all of this gets calm and, and quiet for me, and I can get to go to work. But, you know, all this hard work has gone into the moment of the greatest race in the world, and, and I just think, uh, it's funny for my family now because you know I was four years old and I told them that one day I was going to race in the Indianapolis 500 and they kind of laugh because they're like, sure, next week you want to be an astronaut or something else and that that vision just never changed for me and I just made the commitment that I was going to do whatever it took to get here and I was just lucky enough to find people like Dan, Indy Women in Tech, Guggenheim, and Coit for having me aboard. It's a great story and by the way, women don't ever, uh, parents don't ever admit that they told you that they'd make fun of you. It was like I've been there all the time. Well, so. see, that's why you know I bring this out. But no, my, my family was extremely supportive, and they still are today. I mean, uh, I think a lot of it goes down to the opportunities I was given as a kid. And my father's still my biggest role model and uh, biggest supporter through all of this. What are the, um, what do you say to the idiots that say race car drivers aren't athletes? <laughs> You know, for me, the easiest way to express that to them is to give them a ride in a two-seater. Because yeah. yeah. a lap around Indy and they realize how difficult it is. And, you know, for me, it's uh, no lie that I'm kind of a smaller guy. Um, you know, I say that I'm 6'4". We, we propped them up on a couple of telephones. Yeah, so that's, that's you guys don't need to see the yeah, blow right. shot. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, yeah, no, it's something that I'm training every day for because our cars are the most physical demanding in the world. We don't have power steering. Uh, 
uh, you know, anti-lock brakes. You know, this is still the, the pure form of motorsports where it comes down to what the driver can do with a race car. And quite honestly, I hope we never stray from that because a, it makes it really difficult on me as a young guy coming into these, yeah. you know, heavy-to-drive cars. But you know, that's just—I'm a workhorse when it comes to motorsports, and that's just another part of the the piece that I got to get together. And luckily, St. Vincent's has prepared me to do that, and I feel you know ready to take on this task. So the St. Vincent's piece of this, so you're mentally strong. Obviously, you wouldn't be right. here. But the physical part, work you work out every day? Work out, uh, you know, about five days a week. The Saturday and Sunday is kind of my own thing to do with cardio, but. You know, through us, you got to think that our heart rates in the car usually are 160 to 180 beats per minute, and a race on average is two hours to three hours long. So, okay. you know, that's equivalent as a marathon runner basically doing his thing. So, for us, not only do we have to handle the high heart rate, we have to handle the heat of being in a, a thick fire suit. Right. And, and you can't move for how, for how long? Well, when you're making a seat, you're in the car for an hour and a half, or you got to okay. sit there. But Basically on the racetrack, yeah, you're in it for two to three hours, completely strapped down. The only thing that's moving is your legs, arms, and neck. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to hear that, okay? <laughs> I really want you to hear that. And then the idea of going 200 miles an hour, and you're how close to another car that's going the same speed, but it's all relative, so it doesn't look like it. Well, that's the thing. You know, people always ask me, what's it like going 230 yeah. miles an hour? And, you know, it becomes relevant because you, uh, the more you do it, your mind slows it down. And like you said, the other cars are going relatively five mile an hour within what you're doing. So it doesn't seem like you're going 200 miles an hour until something goes wrong. And a lot of the times it happens before you can even realize that, you know, something has gone wrong. Yeah, you're a happy, you're a happy guy, you're a cheerful guy. Do you have any fears? Uh, you know, my biggest fear is not what can happen to me in a race car. Uh, my biggest fear is not becoming what I've always wanted to be. And that's an Indianapolis Indianapolis 500 champion, a Verizon IndyCar Series champion. You know, I want to live my life to the fullest and I want to accomplish the goals I've set out from an early age. And this is a great step to get to that. We, we saw a rookie win the Indy 500 last year, so that doesn't mean a rookie can't do it this year. And by the way, I could add a few more questions and then there's the normal gratuitous media training that people give, you don't need that. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this edition of Keeping Score. I'm Rick Harrell. The producer of the show, Alex Cohen. Associate producer, Bethel Hobte. Assistance provided by Tanner Simpkins and Carlos Waddick. And the executive editor of Reuters Digital, Dan Colarusso.